Welcome to the podcast of the preaching ministry of LifePoint Church, led by Pastor Lane Harrison. We pray this ministry is a blessing for your life. For more information about LifePoint, please visit lifepointozark.com. For more information and resources from Pastor Lane, please visit mlaneharrison.com. Today we're going to talk about the scroll and the lamb from Revelation chapter 5. And I want to begin today by reading the text. I'm going to read the entirety of chapter 5, 14 verses, and then we'll continue with our message. Revelation chapter 5. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priest to our God and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. May God bless the reading, the hearing, the understanding and the obeying of his word today. Last week, we started with Revelation chapter four and we looked at a vision of the throne room where John is caught up in the spirit and brought into to see what is transpiring. And we talked about how the spirit of God held complete control over him, not only to show him what he could not see on his own, to go where he could not have gone on his own, but also to guard him because of the presence of God in that place. And here we see that vision continued. Last week in Revelation 4, it was a vision of the throne of God that centers all reality. And from that throne, it sources all praise because its glory is unending and without limit. 
And it tells us in this moment, as we move into Revelation 5, that the vision was not only of the one who is sovereign seated on the throne, but there is a great glory alongside the sovereignty, one who is worthy, the Lamb of God. This is a noticeable shift that occurs in the worship of heaven that I want us to look at. Go with me to verse one. I want you to see, first of all, in the first two verses, the dilemma that John was struck by. His attention is drawn back immediately from having gone out from the throne and seeing everything that was emanating from the throne, it was brought back to the throne and the one seated on the throne was holding a scroll in his right hand. Now, most scrolls had writing on one side. As, as you roll it out, the writing is there and, and as you move through the scroll, you, you re-roll it on the other side. But he tells us that this scroll was filled on both sides. That's, that's a bit abnormal. The scrolls were simply books of this day, typically used for reading and public worship. Most people didn't carry a scroll in their back pocket, you know. I know we scroll today, but that's not the same kind of scroll that John is seeing here. You've seen probably the scrolls that are, that are held on the wooden spindles. And you know, you've seen some really nice ones maybe that are 12, 14 inches long. And recently, man, I've been exposed to what real scrolls that were read in public worship were like. Some of them more than four and a half feet tall in their length of the wooden dowel that holds the scroll. And the inner part of it is the dowel, maybe an inch, inch and a half uh, in diameter. And on the end are the spindles. And some of the spindles are eight and 10 inches in diameter themselves with large handles extending out of those massive scrolls. And you can imagine if you've got eight to 10 inches of, of papyrus, basically a, a kind of leather that's wrapped up on that, these puppies are heavy. Heavy, they're glorious. And, and if these are some of the scrolls that have been created in earth, how much more unimaginable is the scroll held in the right hand of the one who's seated on the throne in heaven? The scroll was in God's right hand and it was sealed with seven seals. Right hand is always a symbol of authority in the scriptures. And so you have this sign of authority, but you also have this understanding of sovereignty for what is written in the scrolls because it has been sealed by the one who is seated on the throne. Seals were placed along scrolls as a familiar practice in this day. It was a means of communication. Even kings and rulers would write and then roll the papyrus up and seal it along its edge in order that only the person for whom the letter was intended would break the seal. They were the only ones who had the authority to break the seal and a courier would carry that from one to another and it was his responsibility with his life on the line that if that seal got broken before it was take or placed in the hands of the one that it was intended for, his very life would likely be taken from him. So when we see seven seals along the scroll, we're not only seeing the size of the scroll, we're seeing the sovereignty of it in the, what is written within it. And the impossibility of it being broken by anyone other than who is worthy. And so the breaking of the seal, who can take it, who can break it? 
It denotes an authority or an authorization to do so. It's like when I sit in the room with my nephews who used to be younger and smaller. I don't do this much anymore. Go, oh, you want what's in my hand? Well, just come take it. And they would look at me and go, I smell something. I don't think you mean what you say you mean. Well, sure, just here it is. Just come take it. But they knew if they came and touched my hand, there was a noogie waiting to happen. I was going to frog them in the arm or something, you know. That's just the way life is, right? They're bigger now. I don't pick those things up anymore and invite them to come take them because they will. They're able. But the one who's holding the, the, the scroll in his right hand is holding it. Not against anyone, but because of his sovereign sufficiency to do so. Those seals kept the scroll closed. And in this scroll, God's will was contained as a mystery because there was no one worthy to break the seals. You need to understand the dilemma and the problem ultimately if you're going to understand how glorious the solution. What John describes is the scroll contained the sovereign will of the one holding it on the throne. And it was held only by his authority. Verses three and four, we see from this dilemma a real problem because it says a strong angel stood and inquired across all the cosmos, not only in heaven, but across all of creation and said, who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seal? And as the echo wafted across the stratosphere in every way, and disappeared, a, a deafening silence began to descend. No answer would come. Because verse three records that there was no one in heaven, there was no one on earth, there was none under the earth who was worthy to open the scroll. This three-part reference of in heaven, on earth, and under the earth is a very familiar phrase in the New Testament that, that basically denotes the comprehensiveness of the proclamation. There was no stone on earth left unturned. There was no meteor in the cosmos left unrolled whereby someone could be found that was worthy. There was no one worthy in heaven on earth or under the earth to do what the angel had inquired of. The whole cosmos had been searched thoroughly and none found worthy. You see, the concern here is with worthiness, not just naked power as one scholar said. It's not just the accomplishment of one, but rather the being, the character, and the nature of one. And the scroll is not opened because someone wanted it to be opened. The scroll would not be opened because all human existence needed the scroll to be opened. The scroll would only be opened if there was one worthy to take it and open it. And at the end of verse four, no one was found with the authority to answer the angel's inquiry. And John said, at this, I wept. John, in an instant, had a view of eternity. And he saw, in that instant, hopelessness. Not in the moment, 
but hopelessness of eternity. That what could be known of God, what had been written of God, would not be known of God because no one was worthy. He was overcome by this realization. No one was worthy to open the scroll. And verse four ends with that hopelessness of an eternal magnitude. And into the silence of that hopelessness, an elder speaks and he says this, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has conquered. He can open the scroll and its seven seals. Friends, into the silence of the magnitude of eternal hopelessness comes a word. And the word is of a lion of Judah. A word is of the root of David. That elder pierces that silence by addressing John's sadness with this hope. There is one who is worthy to take the scroll and open it. These two references to identify this one reveal the worthiness of him. First of all, Lion of Judah. Lion of Judah is a title given to Jesus as the fulfillment from Genesis chapter 49 verses 9 and 10. So we're seeing not only one who's become worthy in the moment or in that instant, but rather who's been worthy from eternity past, who's always been worthy Not only are we seeing Lion of Judah, which symbolizes strength and authority, but we see one who was the root of David. From Isaiah chapter 11, it identifies one who who had come for the very salvation of God's people, who's worthy to open the scroll because, as John records, he's conquered. He has conquered. And so you have this one who is in his character and nature and being who is worthy, but you also have one who by the very accomplishment of his work has also been made worthy. And he says this, has conquered. One scholar tells us that the verb literally says he has won a victory. This is not hyperbole. This is not spiritual big talk. This is literal revelation. Jesus has won a victory and the great mystery of all eternity is revealed that in some way, in some manner extending far beyond our comprehension or understanding that the death of Jesus Christ on the cross secured a victory over all of the enemies of God's people. It's done. In his own words, it's finished. John's tears of sadness, friends, become the headwaters for a river of joy of eternal magnitude because one has been found worthy. Friends, I want to encourage you, if if you want to understand the book of Revelation, if you want to understand the New Testament, if you want to understand the whole Bible, put in brackets verse 5 and verse 7 of Revelation 5. These are the two verses upon which all eternity is built. These are the two revelations that God gives to us simultaneously and in perfect unity to know who Christ is and what he has done. John looks and behold a lamb. A lamb. He was told a lion. 
He looks and it's a lamb. The image that John saw represented Jesus Christ. It tells us that Jesus is the Lamb of God and and we're drawn immediately back into uh, Egypt in Exodus chapter 11, the 10th plague that God put upon the Egyptians because of Pharaoh's hardness of heart to convince them of his sovereign power and, and so that he could deliver his people from 400 years of slavery. And, and it tells us that on that night, they were to take the first, in other words, the best of all of their flocks, and they were to sacrifice that lamb and to paint the blood of the lamb over the doorpost of the house And this would become their salvation for all who trusted in the word of God through the prophet Moses to believe and painted their doorpost red with the blood of the lamb would be spared. And that's what happened on that night when the angel of death moved through. That would later become the foundation for the celebration of God's people known as Passover the very central aspect of their faith. We're also reminded of Jesus as the suffering servant that comes in Isaiah chapter 52 and 53 who wins a victory not by conquering but by dying. The conquering is in his death. And so we see here two central features of the faith of those who believed in God brought together in one person who in himself was God. When John turned to look at a lion, he saw a lamb, hear me, standing as though it had been slain. For the final victory of Christ as the lion of the tribe of Judah, as the conquering Messiah, is possible only because first he suffered as a lamb. Jesus brings God's redemptive plan together. His wounds of sacrifice become his scars of victory. Friends, it tells us that the lamb is adorned with perfection Seven horns, horns represent power in the imagery here. And remember we talked about throughout our study in Revelation, numbers are also important. Anytime you see the number seven, it's not just the numerical accounting, but it is the representation of perfection. The power of the lamb is perfect power. That's why Paul tells us in Philippians that he is confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it to completion on the day of Jesus Christ. That word for completion is perfection. That's what Paul is teaching us here, or or Paul teaches there because of what is revealed here. It also tells us that he has seven eyes. Eyes are representation of perception and ultimately knowledge, what he takes in to know. Again, his knowledge is perfect of all things. And so he, by his power and his knowledge, perfectly accomplished the will of the Father and that sets him apart from all others as worthy. And then verse seven, we see this picture of perfect unity. The lamb goes to the one enthroned, and takes the scroll from his hand, takes the scroll from his hand. There's no wrestling match. There's no hesitation. There's no push and pull or tug and shove or anything of that nature. He, he takes it because the one holding it gives it to him. What we see here, friends, is a picture of perfect unity in the trinity of our God. 
that one God in three persons is not in any way divided, is not in any way in competition, but rather in perfect unity with one another. The Father who sits on the throne is perfectly confident in the one who takes because of his worthiness. And and understand this, don't, don't pass over this verse without understanding this, that the dilemma and the problem of all eternity is here satisfied by perfect unity in heaven. Perfect unity. It's resolved. There is no struggle, no opposition. The lamb takes the scroll because the one enthroned holding it places it in his hand. And here we have the perfect unity between the will of God and the will of Christ. Our triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is captured in John's vision of perfect unity. The taking of the scroll activates here the worship of heaven. If you look at verse nine, it's interesting what you see here because all of these different people are together, but what we see is a new song from a voice, verse nine and verse 12. Innumerable in accounting, absolutely perfectly unified in praise. And this is important for us today, friends. The four living creatures and the elders fall down in heaven, filling it with worship. And with the introduction of his worthiness, now the song moves from his sovereignty to the worthiness of the lamb for accomplishing the will of God. In other words, what was written in the scroll was fulfilled by the one who took it. The one who alone is worthy to break the seals and reveal what is in it because he is the one that is revealed from within. He is the one that secured the authority and the worthiness from it. For the lamb is worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because he was slain. His worthiness is now reckoned by his death for us. Sinners, it says, are purchased for God. Look at verse nine. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. You were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God. Friends, we get a look at our salvation here from heaven's perspective in eternity. We're seeing what God did when he so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him would not perish but have eternal life. They would be purchased by the blood of the lamb who willingly laid down his life. Redemption is not aimless. Redemption is not just to improve your life. They were bought so they could be brought and belong to God. That's who we are, friends. We're his. We're his and we're his alone. The lamb was slain for sacrificial purposes. What people thought they were doing when they hung Jesus on the cross, they had no idea what God was in the midst of doing and where he would stand in the highest place of heaven when his sacrifice was complete. By the blood of the lamb, he ransomed people for God from every tribe, from every nation, every people, and every language. And he has made them, it says, a kingdom and priests unto our God to reign with him. Hear me, friends, the greatest atrocity of injustice and upon evil that was perpetrated on the earth has become the highest sacrifice in heaven. This is a mystery 
But it is not unknown. It is being revealed. And that is true not because of those who carried it out. It is true because of the one who willingly laid down his life and was slain, the very lamb of God. Because by his sacrifice, the unifying work of the triune God centers all worship now as worthy of all glory. And in verse 11 through 14, we see the worship continue simply to expand and spread without limitation. What began with four living creatures and the elders now moves throughout all of heaven. And John says this, I looked and here's what I saw, myriads of myriads and thousands upon thousands. Granted, friends, he didn't count them one by one. They were innumerable. Like the stars that God promised to Abraham when he said, if you will follow me, I'll make your people more numerous than what you look up and see in the dark night sky. John looked into heaven and what he saw was more numerable than human comprehension is even possible of. The praise and the glory and the worthiness was without end. And their song was of the absolute worthiness of the Lamb. Listen to this picture and envision it in your own heart. Heaven was filled with the song of the Lamb's worthiness. The Lamb's worthiness. And the resound of heaven poured forth of the worthiness of the Lamb to fill the whole earth. Not only the earth, but the whole cosmos where they had searched for one worthy we find out here that they were not absent, they were not unattended, but they were stricken in that moment. Everyone who is included in this vision, every creature in earth, on, uh, in heaven, on earth and under the earth, and in the sea and, and all that is in them, in what? In heaven, earth, under the earth, and in the sea. They were all present. They were all attended to the angel's first question, but not a one of them so much as moved for fear they might be identified as claiming that they were worthy. And here, the all-encompassing search comes to the chorus of its greatest magnitude when all of creation is stricken, paralyzed, as one arises from them as worthy of what has been asked. And what began in heaven poured forth through all creation. No part of creation fails to worship the lamb because he is worthy of all. What John is seeing, friends, was seen by all creation. In heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and everything that filled all of them at that instant, they began to praise God. They began to cry out in worship because one had been found where none other was. They could not contain, they would not be denied. This is the worthiness of the lamb that we see in Revelation 5. This is the work that has secured his worthiness, that has fulfilled the will of the sovereign one seated on the throne. This is the very God who invites you to know him today. This is the one who has come that you might be forgiven of your sins. Jesus is the Lamb of God who is worthy of all worship because he was slain and yet he lives. Friends, that's what you need to walk away with today. The Lamb of God is Jesus who is worthy of all worship because he was slain and yet 
he lives. The lamb's blood shed in sacrifice was paid and applied for the ransom of people. Paid to whom? To God. The holder of the note. The holder of the note. And it was applied for the ransom of people. We are purchased for God. We are his. And in this glorious truth, the dilemma of sinful humanity has been solved. Satan, sin, death, and the grave, as Paul identifies in 1 Corinthians 15, have been defeated. How? By entering into each one and overcoming. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 9. By the lamb, the schism with God between people and God has been closed. God is no longer far off in Christ. He is near. His holiness and his righteousness have been vindicated. His justice is perfectly satisfied. His wrath has been consumed. Our guilt and blame have been absolved. The most glorious of all miraculous peace accords have been perfectly ratified. The dead have been made alive. The lost have been found. Those buried in sin's dead are redeemed and the enslaved have been set free. Enemies are made ambassadors. Orphans become children of the Father. And hear me, rebels become royal heirs with him. There's no greater news across the cosmos, friends. There's no greater news across all eternity. There's no greater news in the room today that the lamb who was slain is alive and he's standing in heaven for you and I. The firstborn of all creation has become the firstborn of the resurrection for all, for all who believe. Friend, hear me today. Jesus activates the worship of heaven and of all creation. He and he alone is worthy of all your worship. Heaven declares, his scars testify. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is worthy. I want you to see three heavenly truths from this passage today. And then I'm gonna finish with one application for us for the remainder of our series. Three heavenly truths that commend and activate all our worship of Jesus as worthy. The first one is this. Heaven is not absent of hope. The lamb who was slain is alive. We see him because John saw him. And because John saw him, John recorded what he saw so that he might share with all who would believe the word what is held in heaven. The search of verse three shook him, but it didn't so much as create a tremor in heaven. The lamb who was slain stands at the throne alive and worthy. And he is sourcing the worship of heaven. He is sourcing as sufficient the worship of all creation. Listen to me, friends. Your hope can only be shaken when you stand far off or you stand removed from the lamb. But when the lamb who is worthy activates worship, you will always stand unmoved in him. This is why Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 6. You know what Ephesians 6 is, right? Maybe you don't. Let me just tell you. As a basic heading, it is the spiritual armor of God for the Christian. And it says this in verse 13. Therefore put on the whole armor of God 
so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything, two most hopeful words in the scripture, to stand, to stand. You see, friends, when the worst atrocity seems to be unveiling upon the face of the earth, the promise of heaven of the one who is worthy, who stands at the throne of God, the very lamb himself, says you will stand because he stands. After you've done everything, your strength, your wisdom, your might is expended, spent, and empty. He's not even yet fully started. He's just getting going. There is no end. There will be no end. The closer you stand to the lamb, the firmer you will stand. The more you focus on the lamb, the greater heaven's worship will resound from your whole life. For the lamb who was slain is alive and worthy and worshiping him fills us with a hope that is unmoved. Heaven is not absent of hope. The lamb who was slain is alive and worthy. The second heavenly truth that I want you to see today is this. And I think we all need this one. God is the one who holds history in his hand. God is the one who holds history in his hand. What will be, will be as he says it will be and not some other be. What will be, will be as he says it will be. It's held in the right hand of the one who sits on heaven's throne. Listen to me, it's already been written. It's already been written. The end from the beginning. That's why it tells us that God is the alpha and the omega. Because when he became the alpha, which he always was, he was already the omega. The end is not unknown to God. He is not anxious about what may or could be. He's not worried, fretting, twiddling his thumbs. The scroll was sealed. It's already been and now there is one who can open it. You see, Christ and Christ alone is the one that holds the worthiness and the authority of the meaning of all of human history. And friends, it can be easy to forget this in a world where wickedness and evil seem to run unabated. But we must never forget however strong evil becomes, however fierce the satanic evils that may assail God's people on earth, history still rests in God's hand. His grip has not lessened or loosened. It's not slipping. Somebody doesn't need to catch it. He handed it to the lamb. The scroll is filled with the will of God. History has recorded the end from the beginning, and here it is. God wins, Jesus rules. That's it. That's it. What may seem like inattention from God is not. He's not losing. He's not worried. He's not anxious. Rather, rather, and maybe, maybe this is the part of God and understanding him that you need to hear most today. Rather, he is patient. He is patient with us. Not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to eternal life. 
It's the mercy of God because of the patience of God that makes us so often feel like God has lost control, but he hasn't. But hear me, friends, if I'm honest with you, I have to say this as well. God will not be mocked forever. He will not be dismissed. He will not be removed. He will not be derided forever. Understand this, that the stench of cultural rot from the wickedness and openly celebrated vile immorality of every form and manner, the celebration of the brutal slaying of the most prescient and the innocent among us, the open worship of evil personified, the open mocking and derision and dismissal of God's law by people, and especially those in positions that were ordained by God that influence and affect so many, these will not go unabated forever. God's patience has a closing date. I don't know what it is, and I'm not gonna tell you what it is at any point through this series. And if anyone does, get away from them. But it does. God will not be mocked forever. For the lamb who was slain holds the scroll of God. And he is the one who holds all history. When you are held by his hand. You can know that the end. Will be as glorious as the beginning. Will be as glorious as the promise given throughout. The third heavenly truth I want you to see is this. That. Christian, we are the kingdom. We are priests of God to declare the excellencies of his praise. For the knowledge of the glory of God will fill the earth as the waters cover the sea. Both Isaiah and Habakkuk tell us this. And you see, friends, the goal of Revelation is to encourage believers of all ages that God is the one who is working out his purposes. That even in the midst of tragedy, in the midst of suffering, and and amidst of apparent satanic domination, God has not lost control. We can trust in him. Revelation is the Bible's battle cry of victory, and it reveals that God's final victory over all the forces of evil, listen to me, has already happened. That's the cross and the empty tomb. The period has been put at the end of that sentence. God waits patiently for all to believe. That's the day and age in which we live. That's the purpose for why we exist as priests of God. We are here to declare the excellencies of his praise. We are here to resound the worthiness of the lamb who is in heaven, across the face of the earth, the whole cosmos, and to join believers from all ages in this worship. That's what our voice is for. Revelation is encouragement for us to persevere in this assurance that our final reward is settled. It is certain. And we can worship and glorify God despite the trials and temptations that we may have to endure. He will always prove sufficient and worthy in every, in every way. We are part of the resound on earth, declaring now the excellencies and the praises of God because we've been purchased for God, to serve the glory of the Lamb. Listen to me, friends. Every utterance of worship is a battle cry for the kingdom of God. Every word you speak is a testimony. Every song you sing is a battle march. Every prayer you pray is a supplication that the way it is in heaven, let it fill the earth even now. It's the resonation of heaven across the earth 
Jesus, the Lamb of God, is worthy of all worship because he was slain, and yet he lives. Now I'm going to conclude with this application for us. Many times when people preach the book of Revelation, the series will stop at the end of chapter 5. You say, why is that true? Well, things get a little wonky beginning in chapter 6. And by wonky, that's a technical term. I'll define it later. Chapters 1 through 5 are the plainest language and they comprise the most important parts to understand the whole book. I'm not saying they're more important than the rest of the book, but I'm saying if you want to understand Scripture, a basic principle of understanding and interpreting Scripture is this. You always interpret the less clear passages in light of the more plain and clear passages. And that's what chapters 1 through 5 do for us. You see, friends, if you ever lose sight of God's throne room, you'll either be blinded to it or deceived by the rest of Revelation. And quite frankly, that's what so many of the series have been written and recorded and filmed have done. Being blinded to and deceived by making everything else the priority over. One scholar says it this way, kingdoms come and kingdoms go, but God is on his throne and he remains forever. He is the center of all reality He is the triune God on his throne. The throne image enters and anchors and grounds everything else. All the subsequent visions in the book originate from the throne of God, the ultimate and true center of reality. And the throne room vision of Revelation 4 also helps us adopt a kingdom perspective of our lives now. I say this because I want you to understand Because in my experience, when most people think or speak of Revelation, they very seldom begin with the throne. Revelation? Oh, you're going to talk about the beast? You're going to talk about the harlot? You're going to talk about, and everything that they begin with starts at chapter 6 and moves through chapter 19, which is the exact opposite of what John's vision reveals for us. This is what I want you to understand. If you fail to rightly prioritize chapters four and five, whatever you get from the rest will not be right. Any study of Revelation that fails to understand the apocalyptic imagery by a throne room illumination simply becomes abomination. Don't do that. Revelation's not about showing us how big the magnitude of Armageddon's gonna be. It's about showing us the supremacy of the Almighty. God will win the same way he has always won. With a word. And that quick, it'll be done. A word he will win with. There will be no challenge. There will be no rebuttal. There won't even be a cough afterwards. It'll be finished. It'll be done. And what will be then, listen to me. What will be then is not most important for you to know now to avoid difficulty or suffering in that day. We're not looking for our get out of eternity free card. That's not what Revelation is about, friends. But so that you will know today that the God you know and the God who knows you is the one who is already victorious on that day and any amount of suffering, any amount of heartache that you encounter in this life from today until that day, he will prove sufficient and worthy of all of your worship. 
The clearer your vision of the throne room, the bigger Jesus will be in your heart and your mind. And the bigger Jesus is in your heart, the smaller everything else becomes. The most important application from Revelation is that your heart will be so filled with the Almighty and the Lamb of God who is now seated on the throne ruling and reigning that no matter what you encounter between now and on the day, you will praise the name of Jesus and you will find that he is worthy. Let's pray. Friends, is your heart set on the Lord? Set, immovable, not because of the act of your volition of the will, but immovable because it is consumed with the glory of him. Are you trying to follow Jesus because you're trying to get everything right? Are you trying to walk with Christ because in him you're repenting of your sin, you're trusting his forgiveness, and you're believing in his righteousness for you? I appeal to you today, first of all, if you are here today and you've never come to a point in your life where you've repented of your sin, friends, I wanna tell you, the world does not have to be as we can only see it because of our sin-stained glasses. There is a vision of all things, including all creation and the world we live in today that is clear and concise because of the perfect sufficiency of Christ, the Lamb of God in heaven. And if you want to see all things in that way, ask him to give you new eyes today by giving you a new heart, a new heart that is full of him, a new heart that is only from him. I'd love to talk to you about that after the service. I'll I'll be here at the front and After we sing this last song, I'd love to pray with you, encourage you. Just ask God to help you. If you still struggle with doubt, ask God to do what you feel you need done. But most importantly, friends, to assure you that God will be true to his word. That's why his patience remains today. Christian, if you're here today, you know the one who sits on the throne. Let nothing deter him from having every ounce, inkling, and part of who you are. Whatever you're facing, he will prove worthy. Whatever your need, he'll not only be sufficient, but his sufficiency will far surpass your need, your hurt, your pain. You must trust him. You must trust him.